going to read um, from the Old Testament book of Jeremiah chapter 17 today. This is what the Lord says. Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who draws strength from mere flesh and whose heart turns away from the Lord. That person will be like a bush in the wastelands. They will not see prosperity when it comes. They will dwell in the parched places of the desert in a salt land where no one lives. But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. The word of the Lord. From the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, verses 12 through 20. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The word of the Lord. Will you stand with me for the reading of our gospel? From the gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 6, verses 17 through 26. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. The gospel of the Lord. 
You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you all today. We are um, continuing today a series that we began last week called The Sacred Journey. And what we're looking at here and where our um, texts are leading us, um, just a reminder that around here we follow um, a certain pattern of scripture texts. So um, many of us were not raised in churches where we did this kind of thing. Um, I don't choose the scripture texts each week. (laughs) They are chosen by the church. They're kind of historically chosen as part of a calendar. As a preacher, that is a beautiful thing because it is challenging and it's important for us. It's also a um, frustrating thing at times because when I didn't follow this and I got to just pick my favorite scriptures every week, then that was a lot easier and a lot more fun. Now I got to read the whole Bible, which is hard, but... Um, but this is, uh, but we're continuing. Our, our texts are leading us um, through this journey of the Christian life, and we're calling it the sacred journey. And looking at these movements in the Christian life, like these things that happen, these markers along the road that happen for us. And last week we talked about what it means to encounter God, how encountering God changes us. So we thought about back to the first time that we met Christ how we encountered God, but how all of us are encountering God on a regular basis. And what does encounter do? Well, it changes us. We serve a God who desires to be close to us. He wants us to be in his presence. We looked at Isaiah, who was called into God's presence. Then we looked at the disciples when they first met Jesus, how there was a similar pattern. In both instances, we see this pattern that we are called into his presence. We're called to worship. We're then aware of our own brokenness, of our own frailty. We are healed by his word and by communion with him, and then we're sent into the world. We saw that in both passages of scripture, and we talked about how cool it is that that's what we do every Sunday morning. That's the pattern that we follow every Sunday morning when we come together. Um, Today, I want to look through these texts, and first of all, the Jeremiah text that we read. And in this passage, the prophet Jeremiah speaks something that really should hit us right in the gut. I know as I was reading that, it was kind of a, oh, kind of a gut punch. Um, He says, cursed are those who trust in mere mortals and make mere flesh their strength. But blessed are those whose trust is in the Lord, who trust in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. Jeremiah gives us a contrast of two ways of trusting, that we can trust mere mortals or we can trust God. We have this option. And as Christians, we we all maybe have heard to death (laughs) this idea that we are to trust God. Like we've probably heard this over and over and over again. Um, We hear this concept. We see it in memes on social media, ways to trust God. We hear it in different ways that we're supposed to trust God. But I think sometimes we're numb to this idea. And sometimes we think about trust more like karma. We've done a good job in life. We've carried our load. We've done what we're supposed to do. We've been a good Christian. And now we just hope things in the universe will kind of magically work out what we kind of hope and we think. Um, We tend to be pretty trite with it. So we use this Romans passage and we often use it out of context where we say, all things work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. It's a wonderful passage of scripture, but we often use it in this really trite kind of sense. But notice the way that Jeremiah talks about trust and the difference with how we talk about trust. He says that those who trust in the Lord shall be like a tree planted by water sending out its roots by the stream. It shall not fear when heat comes. The leaves shall stay green. In the year of drought, it is not anxious and it does not cease to bear fruit. 
Trust is intrinsic to what it means to be human. We were created to trust something. We're created to trust God. When we choose not to trust God, we have to trust something, so we trust in something else. The life of the one who trusts in the Lord is like a tree. If you read the Bible, it's full of tree metaphors. There's just trees all over the place in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, but a lot in the New Testament as well. And notice that this trust that's like a tree does not say, I'm going through hard times, but eventually things are just gonna get better and turn around and I'm gonna, my ship's gonna come in <laughs> and I'm gonna be rich and I'm gonna get what I want. That's not this sense of trust that's here. This is a kind of trust that says, I will go through hard times, yes, but somehow I will still bear fruit in those hard times. This is a kind of strength that doesn't fear when heat comes, it says. Rather than thinking of trust as God will eventually give me a specific circumstantial outcome, perhaps trust is more about knowing that what God is doing in our heart what God is cultivating in our heart in difficult times is stronger than any circumstantial outcome. The fruit that God is producing in our lives is better than just having perfect circumstances someday. It's way better. Now think about this. This was particularly important for the Jewish people during the time of exile, okay? So they're in this time where they were taken away from their home. They're in exile in a foreign land and they find themselves for the first time surrounded by non-Jewish people people who don't follow the same laws that they do, who aren't committed to the same God that they are. They're in this really diverse setting and it's strange for them. It's disorienting for them. They don't exactly know what to do. And one of the things that marked out the Jewish people was their observance of the Sabbath. If you're not familiar with this concept, it's not just a day off. The Sabbath is a day of recognizing that I am not going to produce anything. I'm not going to earn anything. I can't make anything happen on this day because I acknowledge that it's God who runs the universe. It's not me. And that the world keeps going without me working. <laughs> Some of us need to hear that this morning, <laughs> right? Some of us have personalities where we go, the world is gonna stop spinning if I don't, if I don't stop working today, <laughs> right? But no, okay, everybody's looking at your spouse right now. Um, <laughs> but, but no, we recognize in Sabbath that the world keeps going even without us, that it's not based on our work. Um, you, you sacrifice the money that you could be earning in that time to recognize it is God who gives us in the first place the ability to produce wealth. God provides for and runs the world, not me. So the Jewish people are in this situation where they're going, okay, all these people around us are earning on this Sabbath day, and we still have to be faithful. We have to choose to take the Sabbath observance. We have to trust that it's not us who earns everything and makes the world spin, it's God. One of the ways that we think about this is when we are obedient and we actively trust God, God is doing something in our hearts that will last. Something that's better than anything that we could be doing on our own. Circumstances are temporary. But in difficult seasons, God is cultivating faith, hope, and love, which Paul says are those things that will last into God's new world. God's cultivating those things in our heart. Okay, great. That's all fine and good. Trust. Trust in God is different than trust in um, mortals. Get that fine. Um, now that we've said that, though, when we say it's different than how we normally think about trust, how do we get this kind of trust? <laughs> Where does that come from? How do we do that? 
we can turn this into a kind of moralism. So we can say, well, life is really just about being tough enough to withstand suffering. That's really what life is all about. In fact, there's kind of in our culture right now, maybe you've noticed this, there's kind of a glorification of suffering in some of our cultural conversations right now. Um, Life is just suffering. You hear this in um, some worlds right now. To exist is to suffer. They are the same thing, that you just need to tough it out, that that's really what life is about. A little side note here, I think, and only some of you will have experienced this, but I think there is a danger in this cultural movement that equates suffering with existence. So there are some who will say that to exist is to suffer. They are the same thing. And I'm the first to say that the Christian life includes suffering. It does include suffering. But the Christian faith also has this hope that one day suffering will be relieved, that suffering will cease. Christianity is not just the inevitability of suffering as part of the deal, but the hope that suffering will one day end and the desire to be part of that ending of suffering now, here and now. Notice it says here that this person who trusts in the Lord is like a tree. Why like a tree? It says they are like a tree because they trust in the Lord. The the tree metaphor is used most often not to describe people, but to describe God in the Old Testament. God is the one who is sustaining. God is the one who shades. God is the one who provides uh, roots. God is the one who never ceases to bear fruit. He is the ultimate tree. And sometimes this means that the fruit that is born out in our lives is different from what we would expect, but we trust in God. We see the embodiment of this in Christ, who like a tree, his body was literally planted. Paul uses that metaphor elsewhere, that he was killed, that Jesus experienced the ultimate heat of the world, the ultimate hunger and thirst upon the cross. And yet his leaves were green, we could say. Why? Well, in death, he showed what true life and true rootedness look like in his self-giving. One way to think about this is the crucifixion of Jesus revealed the world for what it truly is. So when Jesus went to the cross, it showed how evil and how broken the world, this is what we do to true light and true goodness in the world is we kill him. Jesus proved what true love is and true hope is in his death. He showed us faith, hope, and love. And in this way, Jesus was not just an example for us. He's not just we look at his life and we see a good example. He is the one in whom we trust. Christ's death and resurrection shows us there's more going on in the world than what we can see. Because if crucifixion looks to the world like failure, like disappointment, like everything's gone wrong, but there's more going on under the surface than what we can see. It's true in our lives. When we go through difficult times, when things are cultivated in our heart, when our circumstances don't all look right, there's something going on in the, in the, under the surface. There's something going on that's deeper than our circumstance that's being developed and cultivated. God is greater than what we can see. That being said, I think it's appropriate to say, Lord, deliver me from this circumstance. I think God does that. I think it's fair to say, God, I need you here. I need your rescue. And I think he does that at times. But we need to be prepared to hear God say, as he did to the apostle Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. 
In other words, God is doing something in you when you trust him, even if you can't see it. In our Corinthians text, um, Paul speaks of resurrection. And it's an odd text for us to preach today like by itself because there's so much going on around it. But I thought about this. I, in school, I was in a lot of um, plays and productions. I did that pretty constantly. I really loved to do that because I like to talk. And so it was, a, it was a fun thing. You guys know that about me. And I went to fairly small schools. And so I always auditioned for the male lead, no matter what it was in every play. And, uh, and I played it most of the time. Um, and it was just, was in a small school. And so we kind of did that. And I remember a time when I auditioned for a part and um, we were waiting for the kind of the thing to post on who was, you know, uh, gonna play what part. And somebody came up to me and said, you got the role that you wanted. I just saw the form. You saw this, you got it, you got it. And I was really happy and I was proud and I was excited and I went on to class and I went and sat there kind of with a smile on my face and somebody looks at me, what are you so happy about? And I'm like, oh, I got this role that I wanted. And then the person said, um, said oh, they don't post that till later in the week. There's no way that you would know that by now. Your friend must be mistaken. And the reason why I think about this is this is something similar that's kind of going on with, um, the, if, if you imagine kind of what I was feeling in that moment, it's, I heard this one thing. I trusted that to be true. And now there's question. There's these questions raised. And that's kind of like what the early Christians are going through here. Paul is speaking to them when it comes to resurrection. They've been told that this thing has happened. They've trusted in this thing called resurrection. They've believed it. They've given their life to it. But then all of a sudden, their family and their friends, both Jewish and pagan, are saying to them, well, that's impossible because that kind of thing doesn't happen or it definitely won't happen yet. In 1 Corinthians, Paul's addressing a couple different groups of people. So he's talking to people who have influenced by pagans in their lives and are influenced by Jews in their lives. And I often hear pastors say that you can't preach a message to both churched and unchurched people. And I'm like, Paul did it all the time. <laughs> so they're being influenced by all this. Um, both, group need, both groups need to hear the good news of the resurrection. So first, there are pagans. The pagans don't believe in anything like resurrection. If you've studied Greek philosophy or anything during that time, the, uh, for the Greeks, resurrection, the idea of a bodily resurrection would, been, would have been weird and strange. They valued the idea of a disembodied soul believing that the body was somehow corrupted. It was always necessarily bad, and the goal was to escape the body. That was kind of the Greek idea. And then there's also the Jews, and the Jews believed in resurrection. Most of them did. They believed in some kind of resurrection. They believed in a day when all of God's people would be raised from the dead at the end of time. But what they didn't expect and what was foreign and strange to them was that one person would be raised from the dead before everyone else. Jesus, not at the end of time, but in the middle of time. So the early Christians are pulled in these two different directions, okay? You've got the pagan world trying to tell them resurrection's not a thing. You've got, they're saying it's a myth, it's a fairy tale. And then they've got their Jewish friends and family who are trying to tell them that the Jesus story is suspect and shady, that it doesn't fit with their story as God's people. And they're torn in these different directions. And here's what Paul says. Paul makes it clear, if God did not raise Christ from the dead, if it's a myth or it's a fairy tale or it's something that may happen in the future, but it hasn't happened now, if, Christ did not, or if God did not raise Christ from the dead, we have no story. 
We have no preaching. We might as well go home. This is foolishness. And not only that, he says, we're bearing false witness. We're lying to people (laughs) if this is not true. And also without resurrection, Paul says, sin still reigns. So the heart of the Christian argument is that sin and death are somehow tied up together. That death exists in the world because the world has been broken because of sin. And if death is not defeated in Christ, if it's not been dealt with, then sin's not been dealt with and our sins are not forgiven. If death is not defeated in Christ, he's just another Jewish Messiah candidate. One who made big claims, who tried really hard, but then lost to the empire. And if there's no resurrection from the dead at all, we should just succumb to the Greeks and go along believing that we just need to get out of this world as quickly as possible. And yet the church, we are the people of resurrection. We proclaim a better story. That's who we are. We're part of a new world where sin and death have been dealt with once and for all. That life has come out of death, not just in a metaphorical sense, but broken things, because of that we trust, broken things will be restored. Christians proclaim that we don't give up on the world. The world is not something that we go, oh, we gotta get out of here as quickly as possible. No, the world is being redeemed and restored even no matter what we see, we trust in that. Nothing is too dark in life. Nothing is too broken in life. Christ has risen from the dead. And I think this protects us from a couple of things. It protects us from cynicism. Um, it protects us from the kinds of statements like, well, you know, people don't really change. Have you met people who say that kind of thing? Well, they were always that way. They can't have changed. People are just always the same. That's an old world mentality, not a new creation mentality. The new creation says, no, people can be healed and restored and redeemed. Or when we shrug our shoulders and we say, well, that's just the way the world works when we're cynical about something. Well, I have to cheat at my job or my taxes or whatever, because that's just the way the world works. In order to get ahead, I have to do this. I have to bend the ethical rules a little bit because of that. We don't really want resurrection to be true in our world, (laughs) because if it's true, it means that the world is a different place than what we've been led to believe by our cultures. And it means that Christianity might just be different, might be different from all the other stories of our world. But this also protects us on the other side from a kind of religious pseudo hope that says, yeah, God's gonna make things right one day, but not that way. Someday in the sweet by and by, God will heal the world, but not now and not that. Christians are the ones who say, Christ has risen from the dead. Tell the world. Sins are forgiven. Love has won. Wrongs are being righted. That's who we are. And when it seems like cynicism wins, because it seems that way a lot, can we just be honest? Like the world does not look like love has won. The, love does, the world does not look like everything is being righted and being restored. When it looks like cynicism wins, when it's not evident that God is at work, we still, as the church, hold up this signpost of resurrection. We hold up the signpost of God's faithfulness in our life, and we say, he was risen from the dead, and things are being righted. Finally, in our Luke passage, so we have... In Jeremiah, this sense of trusting in the Lord, God's doing something under the surface that we wouldn't expect. We trust in him and we don't trust in ourselves. 
in this Corinthians text. It's we trust in the story of the resurrection. Things are being righted, they're being restored. And then we see in Luke's gospel, this passage that is often called the Sermon on the Plain. It's a little bit controversial, not necessarily controversial. It's debated about whether it's the same sermon as the Sermon on the Mount or whether it's two different sermons delivered at different times or Jesus had some content that he repeated sometimes in different sermons. I've done that before or or kind of how that works. Um, But there are some differences that we see here between this in the Sermon on the Plain in Luke's gospel and the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's gospel. First of all, this sermon doesn't just have the blessed R's. Matthew's gospel only has the blessed R's. It also includes woe to's, okay? So not only blessed are you, but woe to you, okay? Also, Jesus is on a level place, not a mountain. Both stories make that kind of clear. So Matthew's gospel, he says he's on a mount. And then here it says, no, he's on a level place, all right? So he's on a level place here. And this is significant, I think, because it shows the difference between how the story that Luke is telling us and the story that Matthew is telling us. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus is portrayed throughout it as the new Moses, standing on a mountain and giving the law, the new law to the people, okay? So the Sermon on the Mount, it makes sense, okay? In Luke's gospel, Jesus is the healer and redeemer from among the people, okay? He looks them directly in the eye in this story, from among them, and he proclaims a new kind of kingdom. In this sermon, he's present with the evil spirits, healing and driving them out. So he's not just preaching. He's sitting there and he's healing and he's casting out demons, okay? And he stands for the first time in this story with the 12 apostles, okay? We kind of take this phrase for granted when he says he's with the 12 apostles, but the crowd was probably struck by the fact Jesus is surrounded by 12 apostles, the number of the 12 tribes of Israel, So it says something about who he is in that moment. Jesus is indeed the new Israel bringing about a new world. And many scholars believe this sermon is directed at the disciples themselves. So Jesus is standing there preaching to the 12 disciples and there's all these other people that just happen to overhear. That's the story that we have here. Um, This is a radically generous kingdom that Jesus describes. Jesus' teachings are revolutionary. They are upending. This is a kingdom where the poor are the ones who are blessed. The hungry are the ones who are filled. The, The weeping are the ones who will laugh. The poor may be a specific reference to those who have given all they have to follow Jesus, the disciples, or the faithful poor who are seeking after him. We can see this well in light of the Jeremiah passage. It's a, it's a question of who do we trust? Do we trust in Jesus for our sustenance? And so therefore we are poor in that way. We've given it up to follow him. Or do we trust in our own riches? It's a question. And then the reference to crying and laughing. St. Augustine once said, crying is a requirement. Laughter, the reward of wisdom. Think about that. Crying is a requirement of wisdom. (laughs) Laughter is the reward of wisdom. Luke wrote laughter to mean joy, Augustine says. In other words, we endure pain in life, but when wisdom is cultivated inside of us, joy will be our reward. 
And finally, Jesus says, blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and they revile you and they defame you on account of the son of man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy for surely your reward is great in heaven for that is what their ancestors did to the prophets. The Jews in the crowd would know that there was a history of rejection throughout the Old Testament, throughout their story of those God sent to call them to repentance. So standing and living for the truth always invites discomfort. It always invites persecution. It does. John Calvin was a well-known Christian theologian of the Protestant Reformation. And I will say this as someone who is not a Calvinist, but I appreciate a lot of uh, Calvin's uh, work. Um, He was originally schooled as a humanist scholar and he was well aware of classical Greek philosophy. And Calvin said that we see a radical contrast here that in Greek philosophy, quote, the happy man is he who relieved from all his troubles in possession of all he asks leads a happy and quiet life. So that's happiness according to the pagans. So you're relieved from your troubles, you have all that you would ever want and you can live a happy and quiet life. Doesn't that sound like everything we want, (laughs) right? Doesn't that sound wonderful? (laughs) If I could be relieved of all my troubles, have everything I want and live a happy, quiet life. Oh gosh, that's awesome. But he says, that's how the pagans define happiness. Um, Being happy means you don't want for anything. You have no troubles. You live a happy and quiet life. But Jesus calls his disciples to see blessedness and happiness beyond their temporary circumstances. Calvin says, Christ is not stuffing his people's minds with some windy argument or hardening them with iron shod determination like the Stoics, but encourages them to patience by recalling them to the hope of eternal life. Maybe that's like a summary of the Christian life. Like we are called to patience, to steadfast faith, hope, and love as we hold on to the promise that all will be restored and is even being restored now. We have to realize that this is always going to put us in sharp contrast with the rest of our world. Um, It means that we will have awkward conversations at times. When everyone else is obsessed with making money and attaining security and freaking out over politics, we have a different hope. And that doesn't mean those things aren't important, right? Those things matter. Making money and security, that matters. It's important. Uh, Freaking out over politics, not freaking out, but politics can matter, right? But that's not ultimately where our hope lies. None of that stuff. We get a bit uncomfortable um, when he says, woe to the rich, Um, those who are full, those who are laughing. Why do we get uncomfortable? Because in the scheme of the world, all of us in here are rich. The grand scheme of the world. We are those who are well-fed. Even if you're here today and you say, I'm eating PBJs most of the time, you are still being fed better than most people, a lot of people in the world. Jesus is not saying it's a sin to be rich, but He's telling a hurting, oppressed minority group that those who get ahead in the world, those who are cozied up to a system of corruption and brokenness based on their own selfishness, they've already received their reward. Woe to them, because that's all they get is those temporary things. There's nothing else. Jesus's kingdom is one where things are turned upside down, where those who have been held down will be lifted up. Those who laugh now, 
It doesn't mean that I thought that was confusing when I first read it. Like, woe to those who laugh now. <laughs> I'm like, I'm gonna be a really somber congregation this morning. Don't laugh, none of you laugh. No, but it doesn't mean that it's wrong to be joyful. But it's, it's calling out those who are able to look at the oppression of the world as it is, the corruption of those who are in power, and just kind of laugh it off as if it doesn't matter, right? Pretend it's not important. Those people, in fact, this text says, they may be the popular ones now, the sought-after ones now, the influencers now. They may be living what appears to be the good life, but it's probably that they're simply good at manipulating other people for their own gain. That's all temporary. It's not what lasts. Jesus' sermon, just like I talked about with Jeremiah, is not to be lived moralistically here. This isn't just a good idea. Yeah, we ought to lift up the poor and those who are sad. Um, we can take it that way, but there's something different going on here. Jesus is describing a new world altogether. Change in a human heart, in a community, in a society, in a nation, is often first brought about when that person, community, society, or nation are able to imagine a better way forward. They're able to imagine a better world. That's how change comes about. They have to be pointed there first. They have to be led there first. Real lasting change is brought about that way. Real lasting change is not brought about through shame. If you shame, if we shame each other, we're never going to change each other, right? We're never going to heal each other. You'll notice this. This is why you'll never change your spouse's behavior through passive-aggressive comments. Never, okay? If you shame your spouse over things that they're doing, there will never be change, okay? It's going to make it worse. You will never change your uncle's politics through your eye-rolling. You never will, Okay? We are never going to change the world by shaming each other. We have to imagine a new world. This is really what the prophetic impulse is all about. It's about the painting of the picture of God's new world. The prophets point to a new world, a new reality, and the ultimate prophet is Jesus himself. And as part of imagining that new world, there's also a recognition that there are those who have already received their reward. So the prophetic impulse is calling out sin recognizing woe to this, right? This is not right. It's not good. Because their hope is in false things and those things will not last. One analogy to this is um, Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech. Um, as the old story goes, and I'm sure most of you have heard this, but Dr. King is speaking about civil rights and he's speaking to a large group of people. And the speech, according to several people who were there, is great. All of his speeches are great, but it's not necessarily resonating in the way that he would hope, okay? And so he goes on and he's got this pre-written speech. I actually heard an interview with the speechwriter who said, I wrote seven great paragraphs for him there at the beginning. And he read them, stood there. And then all of a sudden from behind him, there's a voice that cries out, Mahalia Jackson, one of his favorite uh, gospel singers. And she has heard about his dream before. And she says, tell them about the dream, Martin. She yells it out, tell them about the dream, Martin. King takes the written speech and there's actually a video of him doing this, right? He looked at her and he pushes the speech aside. <laughs> Dr. King's speechwriter says today, I told someone at that moment, these people don't know it, but they're about to go to church. Dr. King then spoke extemporaneously. And he begins to describe the world that he dreams of. He says, I have a dream where one day in Alabama, little black boys 
and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls. The sons of former slaves and the sons of the former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that someday my four little children will grow up in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And then he says, I have a dream today. He's painting a new world, describing the world as it ought to be, but also as it would be, as it will be, is the Christian hope. And we could say on a larger scale than that, but also encompassing that, Jesus is describing a new world. And it is this new world that Jesus is about to walk out on his way to the cross. Jesus himself became poor. Jesus himself became hungry and thirsty on the cross. Jesus himself became hated and excluded and left for dead, but revealed new life on the other side of that. As we close today, um, I think the basic question that confronts us today is what are we trusting? To what are we clinging? Jeremiah challenges us to ask, are we clinging to our own power? Do we trust primarily in our own ability to achieve whatever it is that we believe that we need to achieve? What most of us practice on a day-to-day -day basis is really idolatry. And it sounds like a, gosh, that's a strong word to talk about our day-to-day -day life. But, but we put our lives in the hands of things that don't ultimately satisfy. We trust ourselves, we trust our work, we trust our money. The reason why we turn to substances, to codependent relationships, to pornography, is because we're looking for something that doesn't ultimately satisfy. If we do, that's empty. It's empty. It's like a shrub in the desert that never sees when water comes. But trusting in the Lord is not dependent on our circumstances. Now, I feel like I say that and then feel like I need to, and maybe it's like the more pastoral um, kind of impulse here, but need us to know that this is always a process of formation, okay? This is not something that today my hope is, I mean, my hope is this, but I'm not saying today you're going to be, yeah, I just need to trust in God more. That's going to fix my life, right? Um, I hope that we know this is an ongoing process of formation, of going, okay, yeah, I have been leaning to this thing. I have been trusting myself more. And we need community for this too. We need community to remind ourselves of the truth, that this isn't just a one-time inspiration thing. We need to walk this out together. Amen? Amen. So we trust, who are we trusting? Are we trusting God or our own power? Secondly, Paul compels us to trust in the story of resurrection. You'll be tempted to leave it aside, to include Jesus as one of many good teachers who may be onto something, but ultimately died a martyr's death if we actually believe that sin's power has been broken, that we've been forgiven, that death no longer has the final word, it'll change the way we look at each other. It'll change the way that we look at the world. I think about that even when we go out and serve coffee to our neighbors. Like this is such a simple thing, like went out there with carafes of coffee and gave them to people. But, but in a sense, the coffee is more than coffee. <laughs> the coffee is, hey, we're here to tell you that a new world has dawned, right? And here's some coffee, right? Like, like this, is, this is really who we are. There's more that we carry than just what we have. And then finally, Jesus compels us to see a new world, which is unfolding in him. When we step into a new world, we won't cozy up any longer to corrupt systems. We won't try to just get mine or to trample each other in the process. 
We won't let our bottom line or our bank account balance or our Instagram likes or anything else define us. We will be drawn like Jesus to the marginalized and we will see his face in them. There will be a radical generosity that comes out of us, not because we simply feel that we ought to, but because we know we've been invited to be part of a new world and we celebrate that. May we have faith in the Lord. May we have the hope of resurrection and may we live in God's new world of love. Amen. Gracious God, we are so thankful for uh, this new world that has unfolded in your resurrection. And we're thankful that we get to be part of that, that you call together a community to a table to be part of that. Lord, we thank you that you didn't come with just some, you didn't come with some way of conquering via violence or war. You didn't come even with some abstract um, theology or bullet points to save the world, but that you came and broke bread for us. This bread that stands as your body and this blood, this wine that shed as your blood. Today, we desire to be formed as a people who trust you who are oriented in your way and not in all the other ways that we chase. We yield our lives to you. Help us as a community to walk together, not to see the quick fix, not to see just inspiration, but be able to walk this out in community as a people who hold up the signpost of resurrection. We trust you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.